You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is the ACMA Podcast. Career opportunities for pharmacists in the pharmaceutical industry have never been better. Are you interested in breaking into the industry? It can be competitive. You must distinguish yourself. The Accreditation Council for Medical Affairs, or the ACMA, offers the only specialized board certification for healthcare professionals to help prepare them for roles such as medical science liaison, medical director, drug information experts, and more. The Board Certified Medical Affairs Specialists, or BCMAS program, is an online, self-paced program recognized worldwide as the industry standard and has been featured on the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Forbes, ABC News, the Pharmaceutical Executive, and Yahoo Finance. Become a board-certified medical affairs specialist and build your professional brand. Learn more. Go to medicalaffairsspecialist.org. Welcome to Episode 2 of the Millennial Pharma Leader Podcast. I'm Jeff Pike, and with me here today is Stephen Kiss. Stephen is actually a recent graduate of uh, my pharmacy school at University of North Carolina, uh, where he also uh, graduated with an MBA. Stephen, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So Stephen graduated. Uh, he did a, quite a few internships while completing his PharmD and his MBA. And we're just going to spend the next hour talking about his educational journey, what brought him uh, to the pharmaceutical industry, what got him excited about it, and uh, some of the, the learning curves that he had to, to face transitioning from student to professional. So, Stephen, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about, well, first, what brought you to pharmacy school? Yeah, sure thing. So, I'll just kick off by saying I'm from Ann Arbor. So, I went to University of Michigan for undergrad, and pharmacy has a fairly big presence there for the undergraduates. Um, in general, I was pre-health, so I considered dental school, considered medical school, um, but ultimately I like the entrepreneurial nature of pharmacy. And mm -hmm. I talked to a lot of pharmacists. I worked under a physician in a lab. I had plenty of friends that were in dental school. So really it was just doing some pretty thorough research throughout my four years at Michigan to finally arrive at the decision to pursue a pharmacy degree. And I would say certain aspects that attracted me were not a ton of direct patient care. I knew fairly early on I didn't um, necessarily want to be in a hospital setting, and I knew that pharmacy would allow me to go that route. I also knew there was a fairly large business component to pharmacy if you chose to take it that direction. So right. there were quite a few things that attracted me, and that's kind of how I began my journey applying to UNC along with a handful of other programs. Very cool. So you came to UNC uh, and you got, got involved in the pharmacy program and yep. it's after the first year that you apply for business school. Is that correct? Yeah. So I finished my first year and yeah, then during my second, I took the GMAT, applied to business school. Yep. That's right. Gotcha. So what, what were some of the, the thought processes that were going through your head when choosing whether or not you wanted to add on a dual degree. Can you t tell us a little bit about sort of the, the pros and cons? What, what are the opportunity costs there? and what, what sorts of doors get opened? Yeah, no, absolutely. So 
I would say very similar process to how I chose to go to pharmacy school. I started leveraging my network, whether it was past PharmD MBAs, uh, current MBAs, and also the Office of Student Affairs at both uh, UNC's pharmacy school and at the business school, just gathering a lot of input from people who had gone through the process or were closely tied to the program. Mm -hmm. I would say one highly appealing aspect of the dual degree was that it would save me a year. So the way UNC does it, you're still in the same full-time MBA program as non-pharmacy students. Uh, however, since you're given the opportunity to do a hybrid year for your second year of business school, you actually finish up um, with only tacking on one year to your PharmD program. So right. th that was one benefit. Um, also, I would say the reputation of the business school had a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. Knowing that UNC attracts a lot of attention from companies that I was interested in potentially working at was a big plus. So I mm -hmm. saw that they offer internships, they offer full-time opportunities to graduates at Keenan Flagler. Mm -hmm. um, and I just thought it was, a, it was a great chance to get my foot in the door early. I see. Um, yep. Very cool. And uh, how do you feel like the, the PharmD training and the, the MBA classes synergized? Um, I actually liked it because it was, it was refreshing, honestly, to go back and forth. So after two years of pharmacy school, mm -hmm. I was happy to be in accounting courses, finance courses. Mm -hmm. And then along the same lines, I was happy to go back to therapeutics and dive very deeply into the science again, once I made it back to pharmacy school um, right. after my first year in the MBA program. So it, it kept me, I don't know, I guess ready. It, it kept me on top of my game. And so I enjoyed bouncing between the two really. It keeps the, um, the content didn't over. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say the content didn't overlap too mm -hmm. terribly much, but um, you could apply learnings from both settings. Um, to each other. Right. And of course, in the pharmaceutical industry, you're, it's really the business of that science. And so you're, you're not only the, the scientific expert, you know, how these drugs work mechanistically and you can talk, you can speak to their clinical development, but you also understand the language of business and can understand right. that, that whole strategy side of it. What do you, do you feel yeah. like, how, how unique is that? Is, is that a pretty common uh, sort of educational pathway to sort of cross train like that? So now that I'm at Lilly, I do see quite a few of PharmD MBAs or other science backgrounds combined with business degrees. I wouldn't say it's the norm, but it's not uncommon by any means. And I'd say the benefit it gives you, you, you hit the, you hit the ground running more or less. So when you start, say you're tossed into a disease state that you're not completely familiar with, it's a little easier to pick up some of the background materials that they give you for onboarding. Um, and then likewise, you can pick up some of uh, the business problems or the issues that you're asked to tackle pretty early on once you start a new role. So again, it helps going both directions there and you can rely on both degrees to help you perform a little better earlier uh, in your career. Yeah, I, I really like that combination and it's got a lot of wheels turning in my head. 
So between the PharmD and the MBA, it's five years of coursework. How many uh, internships were you able to uh, uh, complete during that time? Yeah, no, that's a great question because I'm going to have to count them all. We're sitting here. So, <laughs> oh, um, the first one was after my first year in pharmacy school. So this was, it was actually a consulting internship offered through the school of pharmacy, but it was, let's see, it was a partnership with a small business and tech development center, which offered internships to MBA. So I was in a class of about 30 folks and I was one of two pharmacy students, the rest were MBAs. And it was, I would say some great exposure to see if I really liked combining the science and the business side of things. Mm -hmm. I kept, kept that momentum rolling. After my first year of the MBA program, I did an internship with Lilly. So I was in a market access and data analytics capacity, really enjoyed that experience. Again, kept it going the following summer. Um, so I think we're up to my third internship. I went to a group purchasing organization in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it was just an area of the industry. I really hadn't gotten much exposure to whether it was through the business school or through the pharmacy program. And Mm -hmm. I just took it as a chance to learn. Now, what was interesting is, I, I mean, I had, I had opportunities after, Eli Lilly to kind of just put the internships on pause and, and take it easy. But I'm really glad I decided to go for one more. It just, it helps a lot. You learn a lot when you're in a setting where you're expected to perform and, um, and just be surrounded by people that really are interested in helping your career. So the internships honestly have been a pivotal aspect of my development throughout the whole post grad training. I've enjoyed it too, because I mean, it, it seems like it's similar to sort of a rotational program or postdoc where there really is an emphasis on uh, helping you learn, you know, then expose right. you to different parts of the business. Um, for, for those who don't necessarily know what that is, could, could you kind of explain what, what a group purchasing organization is and some of, some of the functions they, they hold uh, in the yeah, healthcare sure ecosystem? So this will be extremely simplified, but I would say a good way to think of it is by breaking down just the title and it sounds fundamental, but what they do is a group purchasing organization will leverage the purchasing power of hundreds of hospitals and health systems so that eventually they're representing 3,500 hospitals and then purchasing drugs for manufacturers based on those volume discounts. So, In a way, it's similar to how a PBM will purchase drugs on behalf of a health plan with millions of members. Right. Um, This is the way I think of it. It's not a one-to-one correlation, but it's very similar in the fact that a GPO will then obtain lower drug prices for health systems. Now, it's important to keep in mind that pharmaceuticals are just one source of revenue for GPOs. They will purchase pretty much everything you see in a hospital. They purchase it at such a large volume. Um, And I'm talking food, beds, air conditioners. It's a wide range of products that they will get discounts on behalf of their members for. Um, So honestly, their main competitors for a GPO are your, your wholesalers. And that, that's the way I viewed it. Um, I'm sure there's, there's other views out there, but 
Mm-hmm. You're looking more at the supply chain side of things. So definitely an experience that I hadn't seen much of. So is there, is, are, are those distinct parts of the supply chain in terms of GPO and then wholesaler like Amerisource Bergen or, or someone like that? They are distinct. I would say like ABC, McKesson, they have arms within their business that overlap very directly with what GPOs do. I see. And that, yeah, that's where um, the difference is then McKesson and ABC would probably have a larger reach. I mean, they are massive companies, but again, competing on getting uh, lower margins and also leveraging economies of scale so that they can provide the most value for their customers. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And it seems like that's just the direction that the, the industry is moving in general. Uh, every, all these vertical integrations, right. just getting more and more of that scaling to capture more value to the system. So, yeah. so you, um, you, you, you tried out this GPO and um, you, you had an internship in the pharmaceutical industry. Were there any other sorts of industries or roles that you were considering uh, before uh, yeah. taking your current role? I would say consulting was a big one. Uh-huh. And I really relied on my fourth year pharmacy rotations to get some exposure to consulting. So I had a rotation at Triangle Insights, which is a boutique consulting firm in the Triangle area in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And then I also rotated through Exenda in Tampa, Florida, and both uh, have consulting arms or, or consulting function. And mm-hmm. it, it's an area I really like because what you can do is pick up projects that are very similar to what I did at Eli Lilly, except mm-hmm. you're working across a variety of manufacturers. So there's definitely market access projects. There's, I mean, there's market research in many capacities and I don't know. It's just an area where I thought there's a lot of complexity. Your day to day probably looks very different in consulting. So it was an area I like. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, I will say I considered fellowships as well. Managed care residencies, I think are great routes. Mm-hmm. So I never ruled out anything entirely, but um, if I had to rank them, I would say where I ended up now and then potentially GPO consulting and fellowships following that. I see. Mm-hmm. Very cool. It's cool that you had the opportunity to sort of check everything out. And that's, that's what's cool about the farm B program compared to a lot of other educational pathways is that that fourth year you get a, a different rotation each month. Sure. That's, that's really nice. So ultimately of course you picked the pharmaceutical industry um, and right. now working in a role in market access. Uh, how, how long have you been in that role? So this is my sixth month. So I'm still relatively new. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. So that's perfect timing to, to catch you then. Um, cause it's all, it's all, I'm sure lots of learning curves and uh, things that you're still sort of transitioning and figuring out about working in a large company like that. Uh, That's right. What are, what what have been some of those learning curves been for you? So honestly, just I'd say a big learning curve was 
transitioning to a role where you have to understand how all the pieces fit together. Now I knew what I was getting myself into, but if I were a pharmacy student putting myself back in the classroom, I was very focused on memorizing treatment algorithms, patient cases, um, dosage forms, drug names, et cetera. And when you enter a role like mine, it's important to take a step back and understand how all of the stakeholders interact. So how does a health plan really work with the PBM? How does a manufacturer contract with the pharmacy benefit manager? How does the wholesaler then provide value to a manufacturer? And I don't want to go too broad, but this is really where the learning curve comes into place. Because I think in the PharmD program, and to some extent, the MBA program, you don't necessarily learn all of the specifics behind contracting between all of those organizations that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, And this goes all the way down to the pharmacy level and eventually to the patient um, from a patient assistance perspective with copay cards. Um, So really trying to understand what that means in practice, as opposed Mm -hmm. to having, I would say a relatively narrow view as a student in pharmacy school, because that is your job to take care of the patient. So make sure you do that well. And I totally understand that aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you go and you're working for a manufacturer that's developing these therapies, you really need to make sure that you're doing it in a way that will optimize the access to patients and uh, so that providers can prescribe and so that payers can then place a drug on formulary. So I don't know if you have more questions about that specifically or if that made sense, but. No, it made a lot of sense. And it, it's, I think it's a really fascinating role market access because you are, you're really deciphering. Okay. So the drugs flow one way, the money flows another way, but then the contracts exactly. the third layer on top of that. That's probably the most ambiguous part. And uh, yeah, I, I, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure that's, that's a whole lot right out of school to, to be tackling. So so right. could, could you kind of tell us a little bit about market access and that, that functional area of the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah. Uh, I'll just start by saying from my experience, there's many terms that go that are pretty much entertain interchangeable with market access. Mm-hmm. So you'll hear, you'll hear payer marketing, you'll hear pricing reimbursement and access, which is technically the title of my role. You'll hear market access it's all focused around the payer. Mm-hmm. Again, the way I view this, if you are a manufacturer, you have three primary customers. You have your consumers or your patients. You have providers, so your traditional HCP marketing. And then you have payers. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, there's other stakeholders that I've already mentioned, GPOs, wholesalers. But those are the three primary buckets that I think of for customers, for manufacturers. And so obviously my role in market access is focused on the payer so that eventually patients have access to our products. The ones who truly do need and could benefit from one of our medications is able to afford that product, um, whether it's because of their, um, their insurance company having uh, preferred status for a product or whether we're helping through some type of assistance program. That really is the the big picture of this role in pricing reimbursement and access. Mm -hmm. I would say 
when you hear the term payer marketing, that also encompasses how do you message to a payer? So it's important that you're able to demonstrate the value of a product um, to the to the insurance companies, to the PBMs, and you must keep in mind what those customers care about. And mm-hmm. so if you want, I could give you maybe a more concrete example of a project I've worked on just to bring this to life. Does that sound yeah, all right? Absolutely. Yeah, go for it. So along the same lines, I, I worked on uh, a brand where market research indicated that our preference amongst payers is consistently below one of our major competitors. Mm-hmm. Now, our clinical package was identical, if not slightly better than this competitor. So we needed to determine where's the gap, where's the misalignment between payers' perception of the value that our product brings and the actual value that's been shown in clinical trials and even real-world evidence. Right. Something and going back, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so you have to think, what do payers care about? They care about a highly efficacious product. So does it perform clinically? Right. Is it cost effective? Is there an economic value? Can patients afford to get on it and can they stay on it? Mm-hmm. Now there's probably a long list of other things that are important, but these are major buckets. So then you have to take an honest look at your look at your product is, okay, do we have a strong clinical profile? In this case, we really did. We had something that a large population of patients would truly benefit from. So we want to make sure they have access in terms of formulary status. Right. Is there an economic value? Yes. Our pricing similar to that of the competitor. We're willing to contract in a way that leaves the class open to providers so that they can select the product that they really think will work best for patients. Mm-hmm. And then is there an adherence aspect, a persistence aspect? Um, is the product one that in, in the real world setting patients will consistently fill? And if that story can come together, then you have a strong case for market access, for payer marketing, for really showing the value of your product to the payer customers. From there, it's up to them to make the formula decision. Obviously, there's contracting component to all of this, but when I put together that package for this product in particular, it really helped me understand the industry, um, but it also provides meaningful value to this brand team so that they can then go out in the field and talk to the payer customers about the true value almost in a story that this product brings to their, their members. Mm -hmm. So, so when you're going to negotiate a contract with a a manufacturer and I don't know how specific we can get today, but um, Mm -hmm. did you sort of have the, the ability to say, listen, we want to be on your formulary, but this other product needs to be taken off or downgraded to a lower tier or what have you. Is that sort of, some, is that a sort of ask that can be made? It could be. I don't know that it would necessarily be in that manner. And just keep mm-hmm. in mind with my role specifically, I'm not handling the contracting aspect. Right. Um, yeah. There's a whole different team that, that works on the, the deals and the contracts that we would place or offer out to customers. But there, yeah, there is a component like in general and for any disease state, 
you could technically contract for preferred status. So I want to be one of one in this disease state for this indication, which means I'll give you a higher rebate for um, a preferred status without having a comparator on the same level of access. Mm -hmm. Now there's still a lot that goes into it because I have to see the clinical value behind everything, but there's other tiers that, depending on the rebate level, there's um, obviously you've probably heard of the other tier systems for insurance design, but it could be two of two. It could be completely open, uh, mm-hmm. non-preferred or not covered, depending on the value that the payer sees your product bringing. Right. Very, very nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks for, thanks for walking, walking me through, through that process. So we, we talked about, or you talked about rebates and, um, you know, I, I've heard of this, this trend emerging of actually discussing getting rid of rebates entirely, a sort of world mm-hmm. without rebates. Um, what, what are some of the, the pros and cons of taking rebates away and what, what are people uh, sort of saying about that? Yeah. So just some recent articles, I would say like drug channels is a a great one where Adam fine discusses the exact topic you brought up. So world without rebates, I would say some appealing aspects of a a world without rebates are it delinks the incentives of a PBM to those, uh, I guess to the list price or to the, the, the rebates that result from a high whack. Mm-hmm. And what this would look like is rather than getting a rebate percentage based off the WAC price of a product, mm-hmm. the PBMs would be, uh, I guess the revenue stream would come from the services they're providing. So it might be a fixed cost where they're no longer getting a percentage of the list price, but rather if it's a cold chain product, they're getting X amount of dollars depending on how many times they perform a service. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so rather than preferring a higher cost, cost product, um, they're actually just getting rewarded for the value that they're providing. And this is interesting because obviously there's uh, a lot of press, uh, a lot of coverage around ri- raising drug prices and how can we contain costs in the healthcare industry. Of course. So I think this is a really neat way um, to address that. Right. Um, I know it, it could be far out in the future, but it seems like this is the direction where things are moving. Well, it could create a lot of, a lot more transparency if, if there were no rebates, but on the other hand, you know, with the, the health plans and, or the PBMs accept that sudden loss of revenue, how would that sort of be compensated? Yeah, I, I think, Perhaps through pilots, they'll start thinking about other methods, uh, other revenue models that will essentially just rely on the value of these products. So instead of price hikes occurring, which I don't know necessarily how this would all look, but rather than health plans or PBMs looking for that bump in, in a whack price to then get higher rebate levels, mm-hmm. um, yeah, they would, they would rely on, on really those services that they're providing, um, the, the health and 
realizing the total cost of care benefits for mm. their members to eventually bring down those costs. Well, uh, I think it's a, uh, it's a good direction to move in, right? Because it's, it's less uh, wheeling and dealing behind the scenes as it were, and more, you know, tie, tying your reimbursement to creating value for the system mm-hmm. um, and whatever clinical interventions they can, they can enact to accomplish that. Uh, I know, uh, you know, obviously we're going through a huge shift in healthcare here at the end of 2018 over the last few years, really, uh, from volume-based care to value-based care where, you know, doctors and even pharmaceutical manufacturers are being compensated less on just the volume that they're, uh, you know, processing patients or dispensing medicines and more on what is, what, what is that actual impact that it's having on those patients and on the population, uh, how, how does that sort of affect your job and how, how might uh, the process of getting patients access to new medicines change in the future in the value-based care paradigm? I think how it impacts, I would say manufacturers altogether is just taking a new approach to showing the value that a particular product brings. Mm-hmm. Knowing that health plans are interested or becoming more interested in the medical side of the benefit in addition to pharmacy when looking at a pharmaceutical agent is something that hasn't traditionally been done. So now when you talk about benefits that a product brings, you can start to bring in some of the other aspects beyond say the primary endpoint or the gold standard metric that's typically thought of in a particular disease state. So Mm -hmm. whether you're lowering adverse events, uh, less hospitalizations or less frequent hospitalizations, uh, you see tons of CVOT or cardiovascular outcomes trials um, that manufacturers are undergoing for certain products just to highlight additional benefits beyond that narrow one metric, one benefit that, that you typically see for products. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it is an interesting space because if you look at providers, they're already being and have already been scored on more of a value based care model in certain instances. So can they keep down the total cost of care much in the same way through hospitalizations, through reducing adverse events, mm-hmm. but now the strings being pulled through to the manufacturers and saying, can you put your money where your mouth is and give us a product that really does perform in the areas where we need to see benefit. Mm. And that's uh, that one, one, one sort of example of that value-based contracting would be the performance-based risk sharing agreement, right? Where basically the payer negotiates with the manufacturer a contract where they say, look, if you can meet the clinical outcomes that were demonstrated in your randomized controlled trial, your phase three trial will pay you full price. But if you get lower than that, you know, we, we want some kind of discount off of that. Um, I know you can't really comment on sort of the feasibility of a, a contract like that, but mm-hmm. do you, I mean, do, do you feel, do you feel like changes need to occur in the system to make that? Cause, cause I mean, that puts a lot of, unpredictability right on the just the even the predicted budgets of these manufacturers do you think there's a way to feasibly implement something like that 
across the board. Yeah, and, and Jeff, honestly, I think one of the big problems right now is there's an assumption that getting clinical data is easy. And I know mm. given the level of, level of data that's collected in EHRs, it almost seems like simple metrics we could collect and then tie to a contract or like you said, performance-based, did a drug actually perform? And mm -hmm. right now, a huge disconnect is that payers looking over a million members, they're really having trouble tying that clinical data to specific products and, and, and showing that there is a <clears throat> benefit on the medical side. So there, there's like an infrastructure change um, as well as I would say just a mentality when, when we're talking about shifting the pendulum more towards value rather than volume. Mm -hmm. there, there's still a lot that goes into it uh, and logistics is definitely part of that. Right. And I mean, of course the, the payers really only have access to the claims data, right. Compared to a lot of that EHR data is sort of siloed in the actual providers. Sure. No, it's tough. And if you think about a PBM as well, do they necessarily, I guess, are they on the hook for the medical benefit or mm -hmm. are they primarily concerned with the pharmacy benefit? Now they could provide, PBMs could provide a lot of value if they're willing to go at risk as well and improving the medical spend or the total cost of care for their clients that they serve, which are the health plans. And I think there is a ton of room in terms of growing or expanding towards value-based care. And these are all, all, sorry, these are all examples of how it could be done. Mm. Great thoughts. It, it'll be really interesting just to see how we, we continue transitioning into that, that sort of uh, dynamic, you know, there's obviously a lot of challenges and barriers to accomplishing it. But uh, you know, I think slowly but surely we're, we'll see more of that. It really seems like with value-based care, it's it's hard to be an entity that isn't integrated and plugged in somehow to the large data set. It really seems like the big data is going to continue to right. have more and more emphasis on that. Yeah. Very cool. Well, we'll, uh, we'll pull, pull out of the weeds a little bit with the market access and, uh, Get back to some professional sure. development. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, on, I know you, you went through this whole thought process not long ago, sort of comparing and contrasting the different uh, employment directions you could, you could take. Uh, mm -hmm. what, are your, what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of postdocs, uh, post rotational programs, like an MBA sort of rotational program, or going straight into a more traditional regular job after graduating? Yeah, I, I'd say my initial thought and looking back on this now, it's definitely held true is that there is absolutely not one single path to get to where you want to go. And that's mm -hmm. important to keep in mind because I don't want people walking away from this thinking I have to do an MBA with a PharmD to get to a position like that. It's quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. I currently sit on a team with to um, past fellows. So um, individuals that completed fellowships are now on the exact same team that I'm working on. And so I think it's wow. more of just 
experiences you want to gain, go that route and just be honest with yourself because yeah. the doors will open and there's a lot of different ways uh, to navigate throughout your career. And so nice. in my instance with the MBA, I would say it just got me to this position sooner than a fellowship would have, mm-hmm. but not necessarily in a better way. Right. So when I think about fellowships, I'm shocked by the wide range of programs that are offered through PPS um, and just through other avenues. And I think you could have a very strong career and a very promising career starting with a fellowship. And those are my thoughts going through school. They're still, um, still true to this day. So I would say fellowship's a great route. The other one I didn't know much about until my fourth year of pharmacy school was managed care residencies. Mm-hmm. Again, if you have the opportunity to work for a payer, I see that as very valuable experience. Mm-hmm. So you could be with CVS, you could be with Humana, there's tons of health plans or PBMs. And again, if you want to stay in managed care organization or with the PBM, then you absolutely could. But those skills are highly transferable, as you can tell from my role. Right. Um, we would love to have someone with that experience working in a payer strategy capacity right. for a manufacturer. Yeah, you um, the insider knowledge about how they, they think, basically, and what's important right. to them. What, what kind of value do they want to see for the patient populations they serve? Very yeah. cool. No, absolutely. And so that's the other thing is I just I don't think people should approach their career search or goals just saying I would prefer to have a job out of school or just yeah. start working right away. It's more do you see an opportunity that aligns with what you're truly interested in and what will get you to where you want to go in the future? Mm-hmm. Because there's obviously there's there's consulting positions, there's positions with pharmaceutical manufacturers that you can absolutely obtain straight out of finishing your pharmacy degree. Um, I'd say just make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Right. No, that's, that's really important. And it's a, it's a good uh, perspective for, for people to keep in mind, no matter what, what level of their education or their career they're in. It's, Mm -hmm. uh, it's important to enjoy the journey, right? Because that's all life is. It's, uh, if you're always kind of spending your time waiting to get to the destination, you'll, you'll miss so much. Yeah. Gotta, gotta appreciate every step of the the path. So that's, that's really great advice. So now Steven looking forward, what are, what are some of your, uh, your future aspirations? Uh, Do you have any sort of major checkpoints on the horizon that you're, you're working towards or any thoughts about that? Yeah. So I would say, so most immediately I'm still just soaking it in and a six months is not a long time to be in a role, but (laughs) I still have my eyes looking forward. My supervisor is very intentional about planning for the future, which I love. If you can find a boss that's involved and wants to be involved in your professional development, I would say, um, definitely seek out those types of supervisors, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know exactly what my career map looks like at this point. There's a couple of buckets that 
I'm interested in checking out. And Jeff, honestly, one of them is getting some launch experience and one of our affiliates. So going and taking a position internationally yeah. is something that I'm interested in doing. I don't necessarily know the time frame, um, but maybe in the next five to eight years, um, going to Japan or to Europe and helping to launch a product and also gaining some leadership experience there. Yeah. Um, leveraging my expertise. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely an opportunity for a lot of pharmaceutical companies that offer that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd be interested in doing that. The other one I would say is just in general, gaining experience, leading a team. So mm-hmm. if I were a district sales manager for a certain region, I would have uh, a team under me that I'd be directing. Uh, and I think that would just be a very valuable experience gaining, um, a role in the field would just, it would be helpful from my perspective mm-hmm. when I go back internally and I'm trying to inform strategies. I have a right. better idea of how our business functions as a whole. Right. So I, I see a lot of value in not only a field based role, but also a leadership role. So at is, this time, those are the main buckets. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Is, is your current role a rotational program or no? So it actually isn't. I looked at quite a few, um, but there is an opportunity, I would say, to seek out uh, different types of roles, different positions mm-hmm. when the time is right. And that'll look different for every new hire. Um, right. But yeah, it's nice, that, like I said, to have a boss that's interested in helping you get to where you need to go and wants you to put together a career map so that you're hitting all the right experiences that will help you in your career search. Very, very smart advice. I mean, mm-hmm. it seems like one of, one of the most important people when you're interviewing for a job is uh, the boss. You want to make sure you get along with them. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, they're going to be invested in you. Yeah. No, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, Steven, do you have any uh, parting words of advice for, for would be millennial pharma leaders? Yeah, I would say kind of along the lines of what I was talking about earlier, but just keep an open mind. I think there are a ton of opportunities for recent pharmacy grads, even pharmacy students that are looking for internships. I wouldn't be dead set on one route um, until you sign that offer and then you need to get ready for that job. But Mm -hmm. I think there is a ton of value in exploring, whether it's through listening to podcasts, such as these going to conferences and just talking to people who have been in their roles for five, 10 years to understand how they made their decisions, what they would have done differently. Um, really just exploring all of the opportunity is what my advice would be. Very cool. It, it seems like networking and hearing from, from the people that kind of came before you has been, been a big component of your own development. Yeah, it really has been throughout this mm-hmm. entire journey. No doubt. Mm-hmm. Have you had a uh, consistent mentors on your journey or is it, are they more one-off encounters or what does that look like for you? Uh, let's see. I, I have one relatively consistent mentor. I would say 
I've been talking with him for maybe four years now, but I I really do. I need to be better about keeping in touch with mentors. I I try to seek them out, Mm -hmm. whether I'm interning or now that I'm a full-time employee, making sure that I do have someone who can provide reality checks and just an unbiased view of where I'm at and where it looks like I'm heading. Um, but yeah, no, that's something I think a lot of people shy away from. They say, oh, I don't really need a mentor or mm. it sounds good in theory. <laughs> and I mean, you can go a long time without tracking down a mentor, but there's no reason not to have one to make it easier to help you learn much quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would be surprised. I mean, most people are very open or receptive to a request of, would you mind providing career advice or being my mentor? There's nothing wrong with being straightforward there. Yeah. Um, And then eventually you'll pay it forward. So people will start asking you about questions. You'll do podcasts, stuff like that. (laughs) I mean, it seems like a a very flattering thing. And I I feel like it, uh, even for the mentors, it helps them kind of be introspective and perhaps even a little more intentional about their, their own path. It always helps to have that ex- external perspective to kind of check your blind spots. Yeah, well, Steven, absolutely. This has been just an awesome, awesome uh, episode. You've provided so much great advice and I think uh, students and new professionals are going to get a lot out of it. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, said, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you're doing this. This is, this is exciting and I'm glad I could join the podcast. Jeff. Absolutely. Great. All right. Well, you have a great night. I'll keep in touch. We thank you for listening to the ACMA podcast, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. To learn more about medical affairs and new career opportunities, please go to acmapodcast.com.